the challenge, the opportunity to connect. The 1960s, a time of imagination and change, a time of anger and fear. The 1960s, a program called Challenge. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Looked at our connections, our divisions, through the lens of faith. Nearly 60 years later, during these challenging times, we'll take a new look at our divisions, our connections, in a new program called Challenge 2.0. Musqua Park is a place steeped in history and in tragedy. Now a sacred meeting place for the Cree Nation in Alberta, Canada, it was once the site of a Catholic-run residential boarding school. Memories of the abuses committed there continue to haunt Indigenous Canadians. And it was clear that those abuses also haunt Pope Francis, who came to the park to meet with tribal elders and to apologize for those abuses. They were but one example of the sour fruit of colonialism committed by many cultures, faiths, and nations. And the subject of this edition of Challenge 2.0. So we're very fortunate to have as our guests uh, two faith leaders who have spent a great deal of time thinking about colonialism, its impact, its implications. So I would like at this time to introduce and welcome Reverend Rachel Tabor Hamilton, the rector of Trinity Episcopal Church in Everett and newly elected vice president of the House of Deputies of the Episcopal Church. Uh, Rachel, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. And we have Pastor Terry Kylo, uh, an ordained Lutheran uh, minister or pastor, and also the executive director of Paths to Understanding, the organization which does sponsor this program and on which I'm very proud to serve on the board. Terry, thank you much for joining us as well. Thank you, Jeff. So let's begin as we talk about colonialism. I think perhaps the best thing to begin with is a definition, and that is simply, how do you define colonialism? And whichever one of you wants to tackle that first. Well, I think a basic definition overall is the policies and politics that permit one nation to feel entitled to take over the lands and resources of another nation and occupy that territory and exploit it. Terry, any uh, added nuance that you might add? Yeah, I think historically, you know, there's both, you know, a set of policies, but there, there's also a kind of a, a story that gets told to the colonizing culture of their own superiority, uh, the infer inferiority of other people, and a, a set of stories or narratives that justify uh, that occupation, that exploitation, that murder, that theft that may take place. Now, for each one of us, uh... History classes in either high school or college were quite a while ago, but uh, uh, to help flesh this out, uh, perhaps could you offer a couple of examples that uh, uh, occur in history books of colonialism in practice? Thank you. I, yeah, I think one of the ones that we know the most in the United States is the practice of the Spanish and the Portuguese, and then later the English coming over to the shores of North America with their colonial exploitations. <laughs> and also, though, between the Portuguese and the Spanish, there's also anywhere there was um, an occupation of territories in Asia. Uh, it, that includes sort of the rival of the Dutch East India Company that really it began to eclipse the Portuguese influence in Asia by establishing independent bases in places like Batavia, uh, India, on and on and on, and gives them the access to, to tea and other kinds of goods that they wanted. Mm -hmm. Any other examples that you might add, Terry? 
Well, one of the ones that most all of us know about and but don't always reflect on it in that way was the Roman Empire, which saw itself as superior and used its army, but also its uh, propagandists or its heralds, uh, you know, to go out and to, uh, you know, essentially pull resources from all kinds of, of uh, communities and begin to establish their colonnade, that is the Roman cities, uh, which is what our word colonization comes from, uh, to establish people of their own culture and to begin to disadvantage people of localized cultures and basically exploit them and their land. Wasn't much of the practice of colonialism, at least in terms of past history, uh, the result of blending political power, perhaps economic power, and also institutional religion. Uh, perhaps you could unpack that for us a little bit. And Terry, maybe begin as a follow-on, and then Rachel, please uh, supplement that. Yeah, I think I referenced earlier that you know uh, nation states or communities that do colonizing behavior and policies use force uh, to come in and steal and uh, you know land and to to kill people they always want to have a motivating ideology and a motivating story that tells them that they're superior. Um, now, many people might call that uh, the, just simply the blending of religion and the power of a colonizing state. Mm -hmm. But we know from history, from you know, Chinese uh, com communism, from so the communism of Soviet Union, um, or even from Nazi Germany, that it doesn't have to be a specific wisdom tradition Mm -hmm. that goes along with it. But there does need to be a powerful narrative that says, hey, we're the best, we are really superior, and we can do what we want to with those people and with those lands. Mm -hmm. However, it's important that uh, within, uh, you know, especially the European context, many, and across the world, there have been many historic wisdom traditions that have blessed colonization, that have blessed unjust status quos, and that have participated in colonizing behaviors. Mm -hmm. Rachel, what are your added perspectives on that? Uh, what I hear, Terry, speaking of the storytelling and what's involved in sort of legitimizing that, I hear it uh, from my work as a cultural anthropologist as something we would call cultural cosmology. Mm -hmm. uh, cultural cosmology in a nutshell is everything in a belief system that uh, gives a culture a sense of where places in the cosmos quite literally and how it's supposed to relate to everything else uh, and whether those are ideas and and gods or whether those are one another and other cultures mm -hmm. um, and what terry is speaking to is yes the whole storytelling of uh, mythological history in, in certain cases we get our sort of proto ancestors of mythology and then we go through to the early ancestors and the stories passed on that um, reinforce in each generation what that sense of superiority or placement is in the cosmos when we see a lot of discussion right now in terms of changing the narrative or controlling the narrative, i.e. changing history books, what is in history books or what is removed from history books, or even removing books from libraries, how does that reflect this overall practice of colonialism in a very broad sense? And since you brought that up initially, Rachel, could you maybe uh, give your viewpoint on that? Absolutely. There's some really important um, mythology around the founding of this nation of the United States uh, that are real touchstones to what has become important to American identity. But we need to put a caveat there in brackets. It says 
white American identity, mm-hmm. right? So one of those, for examples, is the myth of Thanksgiving, the first Thanksgiving, and, and how that evolved. And when we take that apart, we know that it is mythology. And, uh, and there's a reason why Native people don't really celebrate that day, because it's the begin- it really is uh, the glorification of, of genocide. Mm-hmm. So, so things like that. When we, when we get into um, the mythology of the South, for example, that plays an important role in the uh, identity of white supremacy in this nation coming out of the Civil War and preserving a sense of noble cause mm-hmm. as a ground of identity that's rooted very much in uh, a certain interpretation of scripture. Uh, and even the interpretation of scriptures, it says, that looked at the new world <laughs> to the Europeans as a promised land gifted to them divinely by God. Mm-hmm. Terry? Well, you know, Jeff, it's just human nature, isn't it? That, you know, we, we, we want to, you know, confirm our worldview. We want uh, the, the information we receive to say that, that, that we and our culture are good or maybe are the best. And so therefore we get resistant to information that challenges that. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly within the Jewish and Christian tradition, um, we have the, the, the tradition of prophetic speech that is truth telling when the larger community doesn't want to hear it. Mm-hmm. And we know that sometimes often prophets were resisted because that truth was painful to folk. But the fact that we have the role of prophetic speech within that tradition and within many traditions that have uh, a capacity for self-critique and try to continue uh, uh, and create space for that self-critique is really instructive. And so the founders of the country uh, said, in order to form a more perfect union, which means that it's important to look at the imperfections to be able to move forward. But so many folk um, are having this like knee-jerk reaction to hearing information that challenges their way of seeing things. And they want to burn those books. They want to say, well, that 1619 project is, is, is full of baloney, or mm-hmm. they, they want to resist that. Well, that's a normal human process. But it's important to recognize uh, as Americans that our founders were willing to critique themselves, to critique uh, the way governance had worked up until that point, mm-hmm. and they longed for a citizenry that would continue a self-critique in order that something new, that something better could happen tomorrow than is happening today. As we talk about the impact on North and South America, perhaps it's worthwhile to circle back and take a look at what made a lot of that possible, uh, and that is something called the doctrine of discovery. Uh, could you? Explain that a little bit in greater detail and also show how that had a role in the transformation of North and South America in directions uh, that we find ourselves right now. Well, the Doctrine of Discovery is the basis for a series of international laws that justified the European process of exploration beyond Mm -hmm. shores uh, to their west and um, was supported through a series of papal bulls or statements from the Catholic Church and the popes uh, that basically set us within that story context, mm-hmm. uh, the logical context of a, uh, divine approval for what they were doing, and in fact, a divine mandate for what they were doing. 
and it really is seated in the mid 15th century. Two of the most important papal bulls that do that and legitimate that are Doom Diversus and Intercetera. And both of those basically not only say, not only should Portugal and Spain as Christian nations and monarchs go and discover these things, but they should absolutely uh, then take over those territories. They should absolutely enslave the indigenous people of those territories if they refuse to be compliant and should forcibly convert them to Christianity and if they refuse, kill them. Mm -hmm. And that doctrine of discovery, that, that those doctrines of discovery, and there's a whole series of them really, um, really had its, its antecedent in, or its precedent in uh, 1452, mm -hmm. in which a, 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 a Christian king and queen within Spain wanted divine sanction and blessing to go over and conquer that territory that was uh, uh, governed by the Moors who were Muslim. And in that doctrine, in that particular statement, um, they were encouraged to seize land uh, and to put people into perpetual servitude uh, to conquer these territories and to do so because the people who were not who were there were not Christian and thus were quote enemies of Christ. Mm -hmm. And this is of course referencing a Jesus who said love your enemies, but in fact uh, twisted it to give this divine sanction essentially for theft and for murder mm -hmm. and for exploitation, and to and to have the 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 assumption underneath it is that sanction is given not only by the church but sanction was given by the creator to do this mm -hmm. that that every time i think of that i am i am brought to a deep silence in myself and a deep disturbance in myself that that uh, a tradition of love could be used that way could be twisted that way and that people went went, went along with it both of you within your family history have had very profound connections to the impacts of doctrine of discovery, settlement, et cetera. I wonder if you'd be comfortable maybe just sharing briefly a little bit about what that impact was. And Rachel, I might begin with you first. My heritage on my mother's side is Shikan First Nation. And through my father's side, going back to people who came in the late 1600s on the second Mayflower, so there's a way in which I embody in my DNA and bones um, that conflict between those who've been colonized and those who are colonizers. I know that I've spent a lifetime reconciling that identity as a bicultural person. And I know that our country and frankly, our churches, our faith traditions are having to undergo that same thing. But for myself, um, it has been truly um, a devastation of loss of culture loss of family story, a loss of language, a loss of cultural life ways, uh, a loss of uh, resources to be able to continue those life ways uh, that have, and a loss of territory. We, uh, with my great-great-grandmother's um, experience, she was a healer within her community, so very close to people during the various disease processes and the diseases that were introduced to the European colonizers. Uh, and what she did at one point when the boarding schools were being um, created and the 
way of taking children away from families, stripping them from families, stripping them from culture, and creating these artificial boarding schools where they were abused in every possible way you could think of abuse. Um, she did not want her two children, her boys, to go. And so because she was one of the people reporting deaths in her community, Europeans, she reported them as having died in an epidemic. So then they hid them, and she told her husband to take them to Vancouver. And in the, But when he did that, she actually did die from an epidemic. And so then that put him into the whole tailspin that's part of our family a heritage of he became an alcoholic. Mm -hmm. um, the earliest memories of my grandfather was playing underneath a pool table in a saloon hall in Vancouver. Mm. Um, and just having to, um, it, I don't think there's any way to express what, what that's like, to have everything taken from you, everything taken from you, mm -hmm. and have to, have to live out of that. And we know that there's an evolving science called epigenetics that shows that those experiences become encoded in our DNA and are passed from one generation to the next. Uh, Terry, could you share a little bit of your family uh, intersection with all of that? Well, I'm just, I'm so grateful sitting here for Rachel sharing her story. And um, uh, it's, it's, it's very moving, even stated in the short way you did. So thank you, Rachel. You know, my, on my mother's side, my family were Moors in Spain. My, my mother's family name is Morash. And, uh, and so they were among those uh, most likely displaced from Spain by uh, the, um, the conquest of Moorish Spain in 1452, 53, 54. And, um, and so they became refugees and then later went uh, to, uh, to, uh, to Russia, uh, invited by Catherine the Great, and then were made refugees there and made their way across Europe, made their way across the Atlantic. And, and, um, and so, you know, uh, in a bit different way from, from Rachel in a more distant way, you know, my family holds memory of both benefiting mm -hmm. from the theft of land by the United States government at the point of a gun under incredible duress uh, to remove land from the use and the stewardship of indigenous people in the in the Palouse country, uh, in, uh, and uh, and so um, it's it's more distant. But even my family uh, on my father's my father's side has both benefited from and been um, harmed by mm -hmm. uh, colonialism in various ways. And so all of us, I think, have a complex, more complex story. Uh, about this than maybe we often assume. And that can help us have compassion for each other for listening to each other's stories more deeply and, and be more open to truth telling. As we look at the experience that we have in terms of the impact of colonialism and colonial practices, uh, we've taken it up to our uh, early part of our life and past ancestors and the impact it has on us. But in fact, this is a practice that continues. And Rachel, I believe you've had some very chilling experiences uh, in how colonialism is being practiced to this very day. Uh, could you recount some of that story for us? 
one of the ways that colonialism uh, continues to be associated with both extractive industries uh, and a, a sense of empowerment and entitlement to do that to oppress indigenous people is an example of Standing Rock in North Dakota. Mm -hmm. And when those events unfolded with the pipeline there, the oil company basically hired people for thousands of dollars a day who were able to take vacation from their police positions and do this and basically be a privately hired guard. Uh, and the encounters there between the Native people who were completely unarmed, mm -hmm. very dedicated to being a peaceful protest, but also equally dedicated to staying there in occupation mm -hmm. in the land. There was an action that happened where the police had come down um, to, they pulled down a cliff to the edge of the river, the Cannonball River, and they were in doing that, mm -hmm. occupying a very sacred burial site. And the natives just wanted them to move off of that site. So they swam across the tributary river and just to ask them to please move off of that area. And they were met with large canisters of, um, what, what is that? Uh, spray. Large canisters of tear gas that are the size of my arm, like a fire extinguisher. And the, the one uh, moment that just struck me so powerfully was there was a young uh, woman who, a native woman in the water, and this is freezing cold water. And she kept lifting her head up and got out of the water slightly just to talk to the officer in front of her. And I, she said to him, you are my brother. Why are you doing this? We're protecting the water for you as well as for us. Mm -hmm. And he met her full in the face with these shots of, of tear gas that was so much, it was like milk dripping off her face. And she would dip down beneath the water to get it, the majority of it off. And she would come up and say the same thing again and again and again. And I saw in that a powerful image of baptism mm -hmm. and a desire to be in healthy relationship and recognizing our reliance upon one another and our community and the way God wants us to be in the face of forces that are dedicated to division and misunderstanding with real purpose behind that. What does that do both from not only from your head, but also in your heart? How do you react to that? Well, Jeff, it's just immeasurably painful. Um, in about the year 2000, I, I kind of began a transformation uh, in reading the Christian scriptures a bit differently, using some of the social science research that uh, the biblical scholars were using to help us understand the culture and the context of Jesus' ministry. And here we have Jesus, who, whose stump speech was, the kingdom of God has come near repent and believe in the good news. Mm -hmm. Well, the reason he talked about the kingdom of God was because he was saying that the kingdom of Rome was not only colonizing uh, the land, but, was, but people were being colonized themselves. Mm -hmm. They were turning against each other, fighting for superiority over each other. And what he and John the baptizer suggested is that they did not have to live like that. And that they could begin in ways that were very simple. Feed the hungry, share your clothing, give housing to people. Remember that we can be a neighborhood together, or that we can be people, human beings together. And his entire movement was intended to 
uh, to provide a response to that empire and to show people another way to live. Mm -hmm. And to see that movement completely co-opted to justify violence, to justify status keeping, to justify superiority is heartbreaking. But here's the thing. Uh, when I knew that we were going to have this conversation, Jeff, I, I went and I had a conversation with a couple of indigenous elders. Mm -hmm. And I asked them about their experience of colonialism. And one of the deepest ways we need to, re, to respond to this isn't by talking about it, it's by listening. Mm -hmm. And what they told me is that they experience colonialism every day, that every day they talk to each other, they talk about how colonialism continues to impact their lives, mm -hmm. not only through large systems, but by the way they get interacted with in the community. And so there is, there is much reflection that, that I think we need to bring to this, but also this. We also know that, uh, that Jesus encouraged people to realize that uh, forgiveness, reconciliation, and truth-telling uh, po are possible. Mm -hmm. um, he said, repent uh, and believe. So it's okay to turn around because the creator of the universe is still loving us even, in the, even when we are ourselves uh, emissaries of or when our tradition has been uh, co-opted by colonialism well there is obviously so much more that we need to talk about and to uh, bring up in dialogue uh, so rachel and terry i'm going to ask you to join me for a second conversation on this when we're going to continue to dive a little bit deeper into the practice of colonialism and especially how it intersects with our economic systems and perhaps what has become almost an alternate faith. So Terry and Rachel, I thank you so much for joining us today and hope that all of you will join us for the next edition with Terry and with Rachel of Challenge 2.0. Thank you very much. If you've enjoyed this program, found our conversations to be informative, entertaining and thought provoking, and the vision inspiring of people from different backgrounds who can disagree without being disagreeable, perhaps you might consider supporting our program with a contribution. Your support will not only help our program continue, it will also support the broader efforts of Paths to Understanding, our supporting parent nonprofit organization.